You guys like watching movies? Yeah? I like watching movies. Uh, it's funny, though, because I haven't actually been to the movie theater in a very long time. But I, I do like watching movies when I can. Uh, most kinds of movies, action movies. Um, usually stay away from romance and chick flicks unless Amber wants to watch something like that, which is often. But, um, yeah. My favorite kind of movie, though, is a movie that has mystery to it. It's a mystery movie. And uh, uh, these movies are so interesting to me because I really like to try to guess the plot, to figure out what's going to happen. I like to see if I can figure out, like, with the main characters, what's going to happen as it's unfolding. And it's a really accomplishing feeling, uh, at least in my opinion, whenever you figure out what's happening, like, before the big reveal, and you're like, I knew it, like, yeah, I, I got it, you know, I'm talking about, you ever been there before, you're watching a movie, and you're like, oh, nobody, all right, um, well, I enjoy that about these movies, it, it, but the thing about movies like this, the, these movies, you have to think a lot, and that's, that's kind of the reason why when Amber and I go to watch a movie, we don't watch those kinds, because she usually says, hey, can we watch something that, like, I don't really have to think while I'm watching, I just want to watch, I just enjoy it, and I'm like, sure, we can watch whatever movie. Yeah. Well, these movies, these mystery movies, I, I, I enjoy them. But the difficult thing about these movies is if you miss the first couple minutes, literally like the first 120 seconds of the movie, you're like, I might as well not watch it. So like if you went to the theaters to see a movie like this and you happen to be late because of traffic or something and you sit down and it's already three minutes into the movie, you're like, oh, I guess I should just leave because I'm so lost. And you're going to stay lost through the whole movie. And then when the big reveal happens, you're not even going to get it because you missed the first three minutes of this movie. And it's a terrible experience. I'm sorry if you've ever had to suffer through something like that. Why am I telling you this? Here's why I'm telling you this. Because the book of Judges, like we talked about last week, has two introductions. We did the first introduction last week. And tonight we're going to do the second introduction. In Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. So go ahead and open your Bibles there. This second introduction lays the foundation for the entire book. For the, the, the entire rest of the book of Judges, this second introduction tells us exactly what God is doing through the whole book. So we have to understand what's happening here in this chapter. And if we don't, we're going to be completely lost throughout the entire rest of this book. We're not going to know how to interpret the book. We're not going to understand what's going on. We're not going to understand why God is doing what he's doing. We're going to misunderstand God and his activity and his motives. We're not going to understand the book of Judges if we don't properly understand what's happening in Judges chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6. This is introducing us to God's activity in the book of Judges. So, it's important that you get it. Important that we understand what is going on in these verses. Because like we said last week, there are a lot of wild, wild stories in the book of Judges. And we have to know, how do we interpret this? If you don't understand how to interpret it, you're going to be, it's just a shot in the dark. You're going to read these stories about Ehud and Eglon, the fat king who gets stabbed and he dies in the bathroom. And you're going to be like, what does this have to do with anything? Why do I need this? Well, these verses tonight are going to help us understand exactly what God is doing. It's setting the foundation, the framework that we need to focus on through the rest of the book. Well, like I said last week, we made it through the first introduction of Judges, which focused on Israel's failure. Israel's failure to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. They did not obey God. They did not drive them out. After God said, you need to do this. I'm commanding you to move into this land. It is your land for the taking. I've given it to you. You just have to drive out the inhabitants. They cannot stay there. These pagans cannot stay. And we saw the success of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the success of Caleb. But then all the northern tribes, they were complete failures. Some of them didn't drive them out at all. Some of them put, put, put the pagans to what is, is called um, forced labor, which means they enslaved them. But the point is, they didn't obey. They didn't obey what God was saying, so they were failures in the eyes of God. Now today, 
we have the second introduction, which is focuses, focusing on Israel's crisis of faith. They have a, a faith crisis. It's just gone. They don't know what they're doing. They don't, they're not trusting in God. It's, it's just bad news. It's not good. So like I said, open to Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. We're going to go ahead and read all of these verses. Judges chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6. It says this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Starting chapter 3, verse 1 here. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, and as far as Lebo, Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now it's important to keep in mind that the book of Judges is not written chronologically. You probably picked up on that, because last week we talked about the death of Joshua. And what comes up again now? The death of Joshua. And if you read the book of Joshua, Joshua dies there too. So, it's not chronological. The point that the author is making here is theological. You understand, you can't read the book of Judges thinking it's bam, 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 one thing after the other. We have to understand it theologically and understanding God's activity in the book. Now, Hebrew narrative often does this. Hebrew narrative will describe something 
And then at a later point, it will go back to it and describe it in a deeper, a different way. So an example of this is the sixth day of creation in Genesis 1. You read Genesis 1, you read those days of creation, and you come to Genesis 2, what's it talking about again? Creation, the sixth day, people. This can cause confusion, but it's not meant to be understood chronologically. It's meant to be understood theologically. The author is proving points here, giving us backstory, giving us more details. So similarly to Genesis 1 and 2, the second intro of Judges, it retells the death of Joshua, and then it gives a more focused and theological explanation on what is happening in the book. What in the world is going on? And instead of getting specific about things, the author is very vague. The only specifics we got were the end of that section in chapter 3 where it talks about the people that they were dwelling with. Throughout, it doesn't say anything about exactly who the enemies were or exactly who the judges are or anything like that. It's just vague. It's general because it's introducing what's going on in the book. So like I said before, this section is the key to proper interpretation of the book of Judges. You have got to understand what's going on here if you want to interpret the book properly. One of the commentaries I was reading had a helpful quote. It says this, Any interpretation of the following chapters that loses sight of the agenda set here is off track. Meaning you can read some commentaries and people will write blogs about the book of Judges and they will make some very wild connections and and try to say this is how you should apply it. This is what you should do. This is what you should do. But the truth is, if it doesn't connect with what's happening here, with this, the key that God gave us in these chapters, then, then it's, it's off course, it's off base. God is telling us how to understand his book. He's telling us how to understand what's going on here. So this section, it's essentially a summary of what's to come in the following pages. This, this cycle that we just read about, the judges God raising up a judge, the judge dying, the people getting worse. They cry out to God. He raises up a judge. This goes on and on and on throughout the book. And we know that because we've read this part. We know what to expect. We know what's going on. Now these issues that Israel faces in these chapters in the whole book, they're still relevant for Christians today. The issue of idolatry we're going to talk about. The issue of worldliness. The issue of, is God a loving God? Is he not a loving God? What, what, who, who is God? What are his motives? These are issues that Christians today still face. So we're going to see how the Israelites are living and dealing with God, and we're going to learn how to apply these things to our lives. So what God is trying to call to our minds here through this section is, is he is telling the Israelites that they have to be distinct. They have to remain distinct. They cannot be like the surrounding pagan nations. He called them out. He chose them. He set them apart. And he says, you will not be like them. And similarly, God says to Christians today, you will not be like the world. So if you profess faith in Jesus Christ... You need to understand that God requires for his people to be distinct, to be set apart from the world. Here's point number one. Point number one, you need to guard yourself against idolatry. You need to be on guard against all forms of idolatry. So in this second introduction, it it restates what was actually said in Joshua chapter 4. Those verses in Joshua, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 24. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. That's a positive thing. That's a great thing. We We can clap for the Israelites because that's great. That's a good thing. And now the author of Judges, he says something very, very similar 
But the last sentence is different. Here's the last sentences here in, in the beginning of Judges chapter 2. Not that they stayed faithful, but there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So this contrast is intentional by the author. It is done very intentionally. And the readers of Judges, they would have been reminded whenever he's talking about, okay, this is what God did, and this is what he was doing through in Joshua and his life. And then they would have expected to hear the positive. But the author says, no, it's not positive anymore. And he shifts. So the people listening to this, the people reading this would have been like, whoa, that's a dramatic fall. It would have been obvious that this is not good, that the Israelites are not behaving the way God wants them to behave. Israel's problem gets worse and worse and worse because of their failure to live by faith. They're not living by faith anymore. They should have continued to have faith in God because of what God had done for their ancestors generations before. The stories being passed down of what God had done Right, the, the Red Sea, he, he kept them alive through the wilderness. He brought them to the very land that he promised. They should have kept their faith in God, but they didn't. They turned their backs on God as the generations go by. Oh, these are just stories. These are just stories that my grandparents would tell. Don't you know about these other gods here, the, the ones that, that we really need to be looking to? Chapter 2, verse 11, it, it shows... The downfall, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Baal. Baal was one of the gods that the pagans, the Canaanites, were worshiping. One of the the gods, one of the idols that distracted Israel. They did what was right in their own eyes. We said that's the, the summary statement of the book of Judges. It comes up again here. They did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. And what was right in their own eyes was evil in the sight of God. The turning away from God. The crisis of faith in God. And they begin to serve the Baals and serve Ashtaroth. They abandoned Yahweh. They abandoned the God of their fathers. To serve statues. To serve nothing. Just stone. Carvings. They abandon God. They pursue other gods. They bow down to these other gods. These other gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, like we're saying, this is an introduction, so we're going to be seeing the themes and the names popping up here in the coming pages. But the Baal and Ashtaroth, they pop up again when, we're, when we read about Othniel and Gideon and, and Jephthah. Israel began to worship them. Now here is how the Canaanites worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth. Yeah, they would bow down before them your typical idol worship back in the day. But Baal and Ashtaroth were different. Let's just put it that way. Here's how they would worship these gods. They would go to the temple and they would have sex with temple prostitutes as an act of worship to Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal was the god of fertility. The god of fertility and and the god of storm. And he had this female counterpart, Ashtaroth. And the belief of the Canaanites that the Israelites started to fall into and to follow, the belief was that if Baal and Ashtaroth, if they were having sex, if the gods were having sex, then they would experience a fertile land that their wives would have children and their livestock would have children and the rain would fall and their crops would be healthy. So their livelihood depended on the sexual relationship between the gods that they worshipped. I mean, that's just, just so wicked, first of all, right there alone, but it gets worse. They didn't have this idea of, oh, we just have to trust Baal. Let's just trust Baal. Let's trust Ashtaroth. Let's trust them. No, they, they decided that there was a way to entice them to have a better sexual relationship. 
they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put prostitutes in the temple. And we're going to go to the temple, and we're going to sleep with these prostitutes, and that's going to motivate Baal and Ashtaroth to do the same. So they would go to the temple to worship, and they would engage in all of these deviant sexual things. It's crazy. And they believed that, like I said, that the Baal and Ashtaroth, that they would look and they would go, oh yeah, it needs to rain. They need to be fertile. And they would follow suit. That's how they would worship these gods. See, in paganism, it's important to understand, in paganism, the gods have to be coerced into doing something. They have to be coerced into taking care of their people. Obviously, God, Yahweh, doesn't have to be coerced to take care of his children. He does it because he's faithful. We're going to see over and over again throughout the course of this book. Well, Israel begins to worship these gods. They fall for the temptation. Maybe you can see how, maybe that'd be enticing for the Israelites. Maybe some pagan approaches them. <laughs> hey, do you want to go to church with me today? Let's go. Let's go to the, you know, the, the service and, you know, there's some prostitutes. Let's go sleep with them. This is what our God wants us to do. And they're like, your God wants you to do it? Okay. Well, they'll go. Little by little, Israel just falls into this idolatry, this idol worship. Psalm 106 reflects back on this in verse 34. It says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. So they mixed with them. They're, they're learning to do what they did. They're worshiping the way that they worship. And it says, they served their idols which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. Yeah, the Canaanites didn't just worship by going and having sex with prostitutes. They worshiped by murdering their children on the altars of these wicked gods. Thinking that if they killed their babies, that if they killed their children, that these gods would then return and, and have some kind of blessing poured out on them because they kill their children. In Israel, they fall for it. God's chosen people, the people who he has set apart to be distinct, they join in, murdering their children. Listen to the irony here. Israel's failure to drive out the Canaanites actually gave the Canaanites space to continue their pagan worship. Right? God said, drive them out, get them out, because if you don't, he, he told them what would happen. He said, they will be a snare to you. They will trap you. You need to drive them out. They didn't do it. So their failure to drive them out allowed for the Canaanites to continue to worship their false gods. So Israel might have appeared successful, like we talked about last week, by putting them into forced labor, but it actually led to the Israelites giving in to the influences of the pagans. You see, their disobedience, they thought they were winning. They thought they made the right call. But because they disobeyed God, it set them up for failure. It was their own mistake. It was done by their own hands because they didn't obey God. And now they're murdering their children on the, on the altar of Baal. When God said, drive them out, get them out, and they didn't do it. So of course, we're not surprised when we read the Bible says God is angry with Israel. It, it doesn't take much to understand, yeah, he's mad. His anger is kindled against them. The, the Hebrew actually says something interesting. It says, it says God's nose turned red or, or smoke was coming from his nose. Like that, that's, that's the the literary device that they use in the Hebrew language to say God was really, really mad at Israel. His anger was kindled at them for what they were doing. They didn't listen to God. 
They disobeyed. They didn't listen to warning after warning. They didn't listen to Moses. Moses said in Deuteronomy 31, I know. Essentially, he's prophesying here. He says, I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. You will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They heard this from Moses. They heard this from God. What did God do? Well, God did exactly what he said he would do. He said, if you do this, I'll hand you over. And here's what God did. He gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies. He's punishing them. And it says, whenever they marched out, whenever Israel marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Again, we need to see God's activity behind all of this. It says that God's hand was against his people for harm. He was so mad. It says, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. God's keeping his word, as he said he would, he's doing. In the state of Israel now, it says they're in terrible distress. Idol worship, killing their children for no reason. Uh, who knows how many children died on these altars thinking that they would get some kind of blessing in return, but nothing happened, of course, because they were murdering their children on an altar to a stone or to a piece of metal. Going to these altars, they're defiling themselves. And not just that, they're losing. Their enemies are, are winning. God's hand is against them. It's, listen, it's not that their enemies were so strong. It's not that. It says God was angry and his hand was against them. This is God's hand of discipline on Israel. Now, I think it's clear enough already to say this, but I'll say it. God hates idolatry. He hates it. Doesn't tolerate it. Doesn't put up with it. He told Israel exactly what they needed to do to avoid committing idolatry. He gave them everything they needed to do. If they had just done what he said... These gods would not be a snare to them anymore. It would have never happened. It would have been bliss. It would have been great. He said, if you don't get rid of them, you will fall for their gods. And of course, when Israel fell into idolatry, he responded with anger. And understand, this is the God who set them free from slavery. Like, don't forget. Don't, like, put yourself there. This is the God who split the sea so they could walk through it and who closed the sea around Pharaoh and his army. The God who brought manna to them. The God, I mean, just so many miracles, so many things over and over and over again, just proving to them, you are my people and I love you and I'm going to take care of you. And here they are, completely backs turned against God. So, of course, God is angry. It's almost as if God is saying, okay, you're going to worship them. You're going to worship those idols. Well, well, go ahead and see how much help they are. Go ahead. Do, do whatever you're going to do. See how they help you. They're not going to help you. Because they're fake. They're not real. You're worshiping things that God created. God created the stone. He created the metal. He created these things. They're worshiping created things. So he's like, see. See if they do for you what I've done for you. The point is, God told them how to avoid idolatry. He told them what they needed to do to guard themselves against idolatry. The Bible is very clear. For Christians, you need to avoid idolatry. Listen, the same God that we're reading about in Judges, he's the same today. You're going to hear people say, oh, he's different now. He's He's different. He's not. He hates idolatry just as much now as he did then. And his word says to avoid it. 1 John 5, 21 says, Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Keep yourselves, guard yourselves, run away from idolatry. An idol. What, what, is, an, what is an idol? Here's, here's what an idol is. It's anything that you rely on for blessings, for help, or for guidance in place of reliance on the one true God. I'm going to say it again. An idol is anything that you rely on for blessings, help, or guidance in place of reliance on the one true God. My grandfather, um, my dad's dad, um, one of the godliest men that I probably will ever meet. Um, anytime we were together, he, he would always ask me, like, how are you, Jacob? And he wasn't asking, like, how's sports going? You know, like, he, he cared, he's a sports guy, but what he really wanted to know was, was like, how's my relationship with Jesus? How is my heart? I remember we were in the car one night. It was, it was actually like a week before I was going to preach my first sermon ever. Um, and I, was, he, I think he was driving me to dinner. And I was telling him about, you know, I had some ideas, what I'm going to preach on. And, um, and idolatry was a theme in this sermon. And he was like, oh, that's, that's really good. You should preach on that. And he says, you know, there's, there's three questions that you need to ask yourself to test your heart to figure out if, if there's any idolatry going on in your life. And he's like, okay, get a pen. And he's like, and write these down, because you're probably going to want to say this in your sermon. <laughs> and I did. And I'm going to say it again tonight. First question he said to ask was this. Where are you looking for the feeling of significance? Where are you looking for the feeling of significance? Who do you look to for a feeling of significance? The next one was, what are you looking to for satisfaction? What do you, what do you think is really going to satisfy you? And the other one was, when do you feel most secure? He was telling me, those are three things that every person wants deeply. Significance, satisfaction, and security. And if you do not find those three things in Christ, then your heart will be rampant with idols. So if there's anything in your life that you're looking to for these things, maybe it's an idol. Maybe you're idolizing something. Maybe... You're looking to these things for blessings, for help, for guidance in place of the one true God. Now the answers to these questions, of course, they can help you identify what your idols are. So, so what makes you feel significant? Where are you looking for significance? Are, are you, do you feel most significant when you have the attention of your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Is that when you feel the most loved and the most significant when you have the attention of someone? Do you feel the most secure when your bank account is full? Do you trust God? Does, does your trust in God waver when the numbers get lower and the work isn't there? What are you longing for right now that you think will finally satisfy you? What, what is it? What, what is your heart longing for? Answer this question. If I just had blank, then everything would be fine. Did you think of something? Well, my point is, if, if the answer to these questions is anything other than Christ, it reveals at least a hint of idolatry in your heart. So you need to be aware of the tendencies of your heart in order to guard yourself against idolatry. It's one thing just to say, repent of your idolatry. Of course, 
When you recognize your idols, whenever you see, oh, I am idolizing this, this thing or this person or, or this feeling or whatever it may be. Yeah, of course, you need to repent of that. You need to be on guard against it. Every day of your life, you have to be on guard and defend yourself against idolatry. You need to be active in fighting against your idols. That's why Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You dwelling on the word of God. How much time are you spending in prayer saying, God, help me to fight against the idols. Help me to not commit idolatry. Help me to put no one or nothing before you. You got to guard yourself against idols. After Israel abandoned the Lord, they were given over to the pagans. They were defeated by their armies. God's hand was against them in order to discipline them, as we said. Israel's idolatry provokes God to anger. His anger is kindled against them. But listen, there is something beautiful in God's anger that we can't miss. Israel does come under the curse of God. It's not good. They're crying out. They're in distress. But the beautiful thing about this is that the curse is meant to provoke repentance. God's hand against them is meant for their good. Yeah, He's causing them harm. It's not a good situation for Israel, but why is He doing it? He's doing it for their good. Because He loves them. Because He is faithful. So even the act of God handing them over is done out of His faithfulness to Israel. So here's point two. I want you to see God's faithfulness in His discipline. First of all, I want you to see His faithfulness in the action, the act of Him raising up the judges. He did not have to do this. You understand? He never had to send people and raise them up to save them. We said this last week. Judge can also be understood as deliverer or savior. So there are just these little saviors that God is sending and bringing about some kind of military victory, something that we're going to read about here in the coming weeks. But he didn't have to do that. But he did, out of his faithfulness. So look, verse 14 in chapter 2, God is angry with Israel. Verse 15, God hands them over to the enemies. And then in verse 16, complete turnaround. God raises up judges to deliver them. Really what's going on is God is moved to compassion his compassion for his people because of the misery that they're in. So the very one, the very God who sold them over, who handed them over, is the same God who sees them in their distress and says, I'm going to rescue you. Now, in, in any other book, if some modern author was writing this today, the editor would be like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> doesn't make any sense at all. What's going on here? I mean, it's clear. God does not enjoy seeing his people suffer. He didn't enjoy watching them suffer and be in distress and, and die and be killed by their enemies. He didn't enjoy seeing that. So they're, they're crying out to God in their distress. And because of God's compassion and love for his people, he raises up judges. The groaning of Israel in verse 18, this is important. Their groaning, it should not be understood as repentance. Just like the beginning of chapter 2, we talked about real repentance last week. If, if their repentance was real, then we wouldn't have the rest of the book of Judges. So the groaning that they're doing, this, this word that the Bible uses, is also used to describe Israel under Egyptian slavery. They're groaning 
in Exodus. They're groaning because of their misery. And judges, they're groaning because of their misery. So his response, God's response, does not have anything to do with the good, the good nature, the good will of Israel. It has everything to do with his own love for his people. He loves them. He's faithful towards them. And he saves them out of their misery. But, but look, what does it say? God raises up judges. What, what do we wish that it said? He raises up judges and everything was better and they repented and they turned away and then the end, the end of the book of Judges is great. It's good. That's not what it says though, is it? It says that God raises up judges and what? Israel does not listen. Israel doesn't listen to the judges. It uses a very strong word here. It says that they hoard after other gods. You should see how, how intense, how they're, they're breaking the covenant that God made with them. It's a big deal. They're pursuing these gods of lust and fertility who would seduce them over. But look, even so, even, even though they didn't listen to the judges, God uses the judges to save them. Right there, you can already see God's faithfulness towards his people, his love towards his people, where they're just turning their backs on him over and over and over again, and he steps in and he helps them because he loves them and has compassion for them. But when the judge died, things got even worse. So what we're going to observe is that after the death of each major judge, Israel is going to get worse and worse and worse. And the judges themselves are worse and worse and worse. Uh, when I was in Georgia, I feel like a lot of my illustrations, I start with that. When I was in Georgia, anyways, um, I was a middle school football coach. I think I've told you this before. I also get mixed up, like, have I already told you this or did I tell junior high this? I, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I was a middle school football coach. And... Every Thursday was game day, so at the end of school, all of the, the kids on my team, uh, would, I would go and get them from their classes, and we'd go to the locker room, and then we would go upstairs to this other room that we had, and we would just kind of hang out there. They'd do homework a little bit. Um, anyways, we'd be in this room, and there was this one time where I said, okay, guys, listen, I, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take the coaches outside in the hallway. We have a lot to talk about for tonight's game. But you guys are behaving right now. You're doing a good job. You're doing your homework. Keep doing this. I'm going to go outside for five minutes. I'm just going to be gone for five minutes. And when I come back in, you need to be seated still working on your homework. You understand? They're like, yes, sir. Yeah, okay, we got it. Okay. I walk out the door. All the coaches follow me. I shut it as soon as the door shuts. Woo! I'm talking like, these kids are going crazy. Like, I'm not exactly, the, the door shuts and like banging on, the kids are wrestling, falling over. Like I open the door and they're all just like just staring at me. Like, oh no. I'm like, guys, what? What did I say? What? Are, just for five minutes. Like, I just need to talk to the other coach. Just five minutes. Look, the point is, this is kind of like what's going on with the judges. While they're there, right, at least to a certain extent, it says that they didn't listen, but there was still some kind of restraining going on because it kept getting worse after the death of the judges. So just like my middle school football players, whenever the coaches left, just absolute chaos. No rules. <laughs> doesn't matter what's going on. The presence of the judges were restraining them from getting worse and worse, and after the judge died... It just got worse. They pursued false gods more. They did not stop in their stubborn ways. And again, it's crucial to understand that this is what's going to happen. It's setting the stage for what's going to happen over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. 
They get worse. Their devotion to God gets worse. So what does God do? We know what he does. He punishes them. He disciplines them. His anger was kindled against them because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry. He tells them, I'm not going to drive out the pagans. And he does this to test them. But what I want us to see is that even in God's anger, his faithfulness is there. Even in his anger, his burning anger and wrath on Israel, his faithfulness can be seen there. God is angry because he's a jealous God. Exodus 34, it says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He is so jealous over his people that he says, Call me Jealous. My name is Jealous. I'm jealous for you, for your devotion, for your worship. You shall not ever worship other gods. So he's angry with Israel because he is a jealous God. He's jealous over their worship. But you need to understand that jealousy and love here in God's economy are two sides of the same coin. God is jealous for his people because he loves his people. I want you to imagine that a husband came home and he found his wife cheating on him. Caught in the act. And this husband has been like the perfect husband. Like just patient and attentive and he cooks and cleans and he does all, all the great, he does all the perfect stuff. He's a perfect husband. And he comes home and he catches his wife cheating on him. And he looks at them and he goes, oh, well. And he walks out. He says, okay, you know, you win some, you lose some, I guess. Oh, well. What would, what would you say? What, what if your friend tells you this story like, hey, this is crazy. Yeah, this happened. Oh, oh, well, you know, that's just how life goes. You'd be like, dude, what is wrong with you? You don't love your wife, do you? That's what you would say. There's no way that you love your wife if that's your response to her unfaithfulness towards you. Because if you really love her, you should be jealous. You should be angry. You should be upset. You see, God's love for his people moves him to his jealousy. God loves his people and he is a jealous God. He does not tolerate idolatry. So when you turn your attention to idols, God is jealous. Because he loves you. His jealousy, his anger over his children, it shows his faithfulness. Look, God could have started over. He could have said, all right, I'm choosing a new people. You guys clearly are not working out. There's people over here. I'm going to choose them. Did he do that? No, he didn't. Why? Because he's faithful to his people. Because he loves those that he's chosen. Even when their backs are turned against them, his jealousy is burning. He, he loves them. You can see his love in this. And he disciplines them to get them to repent. To get them to turn back to him. Because he loves them. And listen, God deals with his people the same way today. If you have put your trust in Christ, God is jealous for you, over you. For your worship. Because he loves you. God is angry when his people commit idolatry. He is angry when his people choose to sin rather than obey him. And he disciplines his people when they need correction. Again, he's the same God. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So look, many people will read the book of Judges and they'll get to this point and they'll just be like, wow, God is just some power-hungry, evil, manipulative, dictator God who just is needy and he needs the worship of his people and he just pitches a fit when he doesn't get it. 
that could not be further from the truth of who God is and what is going on in the book of Judges and truthfully in the whole story of Israel. The motivation behind the discipline of God is his love. He disciplines you. Why? Because he knows it is best for you. He wants the best for you. It might be a little provocative to say, but of course I'm not saying he wants you to be rich and famous and have a million dollars. and He wants the best for you, and what is the best thing for you is to be walking in step with him. Is to be living in obedience to him. Is to have wholehearted devotion to him and him alone. That's the best thing for you. And God wants that for you. So when you walk away and turn your back on him, he disciplines you to put you back on the right path because he loves you and he wants the best for you. He's not doing this because he needs your worship. Understand? He's not some needy God. He doesn't need your worship. He deserves your worship. He's the only one worthy of your worship. So when he sees his people, when he sees those that have put their trust in Christ today, give their attention and their devotion somewhere else, looking for their satisfaction, their, their security, and something in someone else, it angers him. Because he's jealous. He's a jealous God. Because he's a loving God. Just like the discipline of your parents when you were growing up was done because they love you, God's discipline is done because of his love for you. So you can see through the book of Judges, Right here in the second introduction, you can see that God never stops loving Israel. He never stops loving his people. They turn their back on him. They trample over his name. They over and over and over again, disobeying, turning their back, abandoning him. And he does not ever stop loving them. His faithfulness towards Israel never faltered his faithfulness towards his people if you have put your trust in Jesus God's faithfulness towards you will never falter will never fail ever so look if you find yourself under the discipline of God don't react with anger don't throw curses at God you need to recognize that what he's doing He's disciplining you to show you that you need to repent. He's showing you, hey, this is not what is best for you. Over here is what's best for you. This is what you need to do. You need to repent. And he does this because he loves you. So the second introduction of Judges, it comes to a close with detail about the nations that God left in the promised land and some more details about why he did it. And he says that he left the nations to test Israel. Not testing them in the sense of God's going, okay, I wonder what they're going to do. He knows what they're going to do, of course. Testing them in the sense of this is an opportunity for Israel to express their allegiance to God. Right, chapter 3, verse 4 says, he did this to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Right, so God, he tells them to drive them out. He says, don't mix with them. Don't marry their daughters. Do not do that. And what does, the, what does chapter 3, verse 6 say? They married their daughters. They disobeyed. They didn't listen to God. Here's point number three. You need to avoid, avoid worldliness at all costs. Israel was commanded to remain distinct. God said, do not become like the pagans. Do not become like the world. Do not fall into those temptations. Do not listen to them. Get them out or their gods will become a snare to you. They didn't listen, they disobeyed, they dwelled in the land with them, and they became like them. 
Now look, obviously, the application here is not to drive out non-Christians from the land. But we are commanded to remain distinct. To remain separate from culture. From the world. From the world that does not know Christ. So when I say avoid worldliness, I'm saying avoid conforming to the patterns of those who don't trust in Christ. Avoid becoming like the world. You need to be living differently. You need to be living differently. If you profess faith in Christ, you should not look like the world. You should not. If you profess faith in Jesus, I should be able to look at you and and hear about your lifestyle and then look at the lifestyle of someone who doesn't trust in Jesus and it should be night and day different. So if you think about your life and your lifestyle and the way that you're living and maybe you're realizing, wow, it's not, it's not very distinct. Maybe you're thinking, I've got, I've got friends who aren't Christians and my life doesn't look a whole lot different than theirs. You're being disobedient. You're being disobedient if that's your life. You need to avoid worldliness at all costs. So, if you look like the world, if you know the situations that you get yourself in when you are maybe more inclined to respond in a worldly manner or to be behaving in a worldly way, you've got you to avoid it. You don't put yourself there. You don't go there. If there's people that you hang out with a lot and there are negative influences on your life, guess what? Stop hanging out with them. Stop it. Oh, well, that's, that's mean. I don't want to do that because they're my best friends. They are leading you to be disobedient to God. You understand? That's where your concern should be. Do you have people in your life that you're hanging out with and they are leading you further from Christ? Are you conforming to the patterns of the world because you're hanging out with certain individuals? If so, you need to stop hanging out with them. Maybe it's not a friend. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's your boyfriend. Maybe it's your girlfriend. Maybe you're dating someone. Maybe, maybe you're thinking about marrying someone, but this person is not leading you closer to Christ. They're leading you further away. Listen, break up. Just stop. You have to avoid worldliness at all costs. What do you what do you care about most? Like really, what do you care about? Do you want to honor Christ with your life? Do you want Christ to be pleased with your life? You should. And if you do, and there's some pattern that you're finding yourself in that's causing you to be led astray, led away from him, then you got to cut out the pattern. you, you got to stop it. you got to avoid worldliness. Because God commands his people to be distinct. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to the world. So look, the story of Judges, the story of the Israelites in the book of Judges, it's a slow fade into apostasy. It's a slow fade of God's people very slowly becoming just like the pagan world around them. And the slow fade all began because they took their eyes off of God and they started looking elsewhere. You may not think that it's a big deal when your priorities get a little bit off. It is a big deal. Because it's a slow fade. It's a big deal to God. 
It's a big deal to God that his people remain distinct from the world, that you not let your guard down against idolatry. Do not let the world conform you to itself. Like it's a battle and you have to stay engaged in this battle your whole life. We don't have the luxury of slacking off, of, of giving up. So you need to avoid the mistake that Israel made. You need to guard yourself against idolatry. You need to see God's faithfulness and his anger and his discipline. You need to avoid worldliness at all costs. Let's pray. God, please help us to be a people that honor you. Not just with our mouths, not just with some kind of exterior appearance. God, help us to be people that you are pleased with. God, help us to avoid the mistakes that we can see Israel made over and over again. Help us to avoid conforming to the world and help us to be on guard against idols. God, help us to, no matter what, to never lose sight of your faithfulness towards your people, your love for your people. God, let us be people that please you. If there's anything in our lives that is causing us to be more like the world, if we're looking to idols and we're not looking to you, God, help us to recognize them, help us to repent and turn to you to have wholehearted devotion to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.